I know what you're thinking. Is this the booth, drafting the circuits, three-way theater or the Kevin Jackson show? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kinda lost track myself here on Hoobazoo.com. So, do you feel lucky, punk? Oscar Mike Radio, come in, come in Oscar Mike Radio. Sinista One, this is Oscar Mike. I have Ulima Charlie over. Folks, good evening. This is Travis with Oscar Mike Radio. Today is May 10th, 2018, episode 92, and I got a great show for you. I am talking to Richard Fitz Jr. and his producer, Rudy Childs. Thank you very much. And I had started talking to Richard about a month, month and a half ago about his uh, project to honor his father, and Richard's here with us today to tell us more about it and some of his background. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Pleasure to be here. Excellent, excellent. So we start talking, and you're producing and creating this video about your father's service in Vietnam. And it really kind of connected with me because it's my understanding that a lot of times children and siblings are, are left out of the grieving process. So if you would, can you kind of take us through how you got to this point? Because it's, it's real interesting to read about it. Well, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's a little... It's, even my story is uh, quite unique to even the grieving process. Um, the, the story laid out where uh, my father was missing uh, from 68 to 75. Although he was killed, he, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't know what really happened. So there was a presumption of death and a military funeral in 75. Um, and at that time, uh, he kind of his parents, my father's parents, and my mother and myself kind of went separate ways. And it wasn't until the full 21 years came by, late 89, that we got information that the site was found, his remains were found, and they were being identified. And uh, that's how, that's why it was unique, um, because the entire family grouped from either side of the family his side and my side, my, my side, weren't really together the whole time. Okay. Um, so it's, it's a different situation. I'm sure it's happened to people before, but it's not your typical family unit where everybody would be involved. And I think some of, you know, the, being that the kids get left out, it's, I'm not sure how, why that works the way it did with me. I felt it was a little bit more than uh, than people weren't didn't really even know that I was really the son or whatever. You know, a lot of people didn't realize that my father even had a son. Um, so the whole thing was it really came back around very suddenly because we were in a completely different world. 
So your, your, your father passed when you, you, you were very young. I was two years old. Two years old. So you never really got to know him. And then all this time passes, all of a sudden it's like we, we, we located his remains. What kind of feelings were being pushed around in your mind as you were going through all this, this news that, that was coming around about this? Well, I tell you what, it was incredibly confusing. Um, <clears throat> not to mention, it was also it was a lot of insecurities because I didn't know how to, how to be, how to act, uh, because it was a completely different world. Um, you know, and I haven't mentioned this before, but at the time, too, I was going through some kind of crazy sickness. I was in and out of the hospital, so I was literally standing in front of people just feeling like, you know, absolute, you know what, and trying to process it all. And you're literally coming from what couldn't be more of a civilian type of world to meeting people that were, you know, some of the most elite warriors in, in, that we have. And, you know, I mean all the way up to, you know, people in the Pentagon, White House, everything. Well, that's funny you said it because you have kind of like this rebel vibe going on. And so <laughs> that must have been interesting, standing in front of brass. And you, you kind of strike me as a like a rocker, metalhead type, which I identify with. So it was that your background? <clears throat> yes. Um, I. It's kind of funny. I When I was a kid, I did lots of different things. I mean, I was into many different you know i had just like any other kid i mean i was literally on what 75 we bought a horse farm or my mother started a horse farm and you know my life was raised around horses and a big farm and this and that and uh you know eventually dirt bikes and you know i was dabbling in karate and boxing and but at the same time you know i'm growing into this long-haired 80s rock and roller you know I was the only long-haired kid in the boxing ring you know what I mean it was just the weirdest thing it was a very odd contrast all the time I had just it was just weird but you know it was I grew up like starting to learn guitar and music and getting really interested in that that was my escape and um, I put many 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 hours into that and that was you know I'd come home from school and a lot of kids would go out and hang out with their buddies or whatnot. You know, I'm not going to say all the time, but most of the time, I was locking myself in a room learning, copping licks off of you know record players and stuff. And you know that was my my starry-eyed you know dream when I was a kid. Did Did your mom ever talk about your father, or, or was that something that she kind of put away to help her grieve? Well, actually, no. Uh, she there was never any. I don't want to talk about it or it was never really like that there was a lot of things in my basement that came home uh, including letters and stuff and once in a while we go through them and <clears throat> read them or whatever and you know memorabilia medals all that stuff um, but I think in a way I think it was it was difficult for her um, because I think it was a constant reminder and <clears throat> She never once hesitated to answer any questions. But truthfully, most of those questions were going to come in the form of, you know, why did he die or, or what, you know. And it gets to the point where, you know, you do start asking details, but there's no details for her to answer because it was so classified. Even during her, his training sometimes and, and at Bragg, when he'd go out on maneuvers or whatever, he couldn't even tell her where they were going. Wow. Just in training. So, 
so there's how do you answer these questions to your son? Well, it must have been difficult. It must have, must have been really difficult. So this drops, and it must have sent ripples and shockwaves to the entire family on both sides. And you're, you're talking to these people now. What started happening after the initial, you know, just blunt force trauma to your emotional well-being happened? It, the, it to this day, sometimes it's still awkward yeah. because... And now, since my, my, my father's grandparents, uh, grandparents on his side, they have since both since passed. And um, I've gotten more memorabilia and stuff you know, back to me because of that, that happening. Um, but the entire time during, during this was, you know, a little touchy-feely, like it, it was cautious. Right. We would talk, you know, but there was always some type of odd riff or, or some weird thing going on and uh you know i think on both sides because we really didn't have that many those years to to bond to bond through this issue it was the other way around so when we all of a sudden come back together you have not, to, not only do i have to figure out how to navigate <clears throat> through the this military presence but I have to learn how to navigate my father's side of the family. Oh, wow. So it was, you know, it was just felt just the entire thing was just, you know, you're kind of walking on eggshells the whole time. You don't want to do the wrong thing. This happened in 1989. And then <clears throat> both sides process this. You, you talk to the, the army about this. What led you to say, you know what, I, I want to tell this story? And, and I'm very interested in this because as we, we've talked when we started, you know, introducing ourselves, it just strikes me that um, World War One, World War II veterans are profiled. There's, there's tons of, of positive stories and movies made about them. That the last 20 years has been a very positive thing for the military, but it still seems like to a large extent, this is just my perception, that in many ways the, the Vietnam veterans still don't get the recognition they deserve. And I, and I don't understand why that is, especially since unlike uh, now, you guys were drafted. I mean, your father was either, you know, he had buddies that were drafted or they were drafted to go. They didn't have a choice, many of them. <clears throat> so I, I'm just really interested into what led you to tell this very personal story and how your producer kind of helped get this set up? Well, <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, it simply comes down to the story was always fairly big around in, in this area. And, you know, honestly, unbeknownst to me, it was actually a lot bigger within the military than I ever knew. But from those newspaper clippings and articles and everything else from the 70s all the way up to you know, the call of 89 the funeral and there was a lot of press it came down to on a personal level for me a lot of people would talk in circles wow it's such an interesting story you, know, you should do a book and <clears throat> you know you should you have a great story not that I didn't not that I wasn't aware of I, that I had a story. Um, <laughs> quite honestly, 
patience of me writing a book is out the window. I, I, I can't do that. <clears throat> but all kidding aside, it was, first of all, 1990. I've had so many friends right around that time, you know, jokingly, she's like a local celeb, <clears throat> didn't know how to take that because what was going on to me, I thought it was not a good time for me to say, let's do the story now. It's disrespectful. I, you know, I, thankfully, I, I went with that for a while and didn't do it. But the truth of the matter was that when everything went down, there was so much I had to learn. I had to literally, I use this term in the documentary, it was a metaphorical lifetime to, for me to even learn about what was just handed to me. And I still am learning. And I did, didn't want to do the wrong thing. <clears throat> so I had to have knowledge, first of all. And second of all, the trigger for me was there's so many little questions and information that I was always asking my mother questions. She literally was the only one that I could ask questions other than a very few people that knew him as a young kid or something. So, and it was still, everything was always vague, you know? So, years go by and now I have my own son. And naturally, as we get older, you know, your lives get busy. <laughs> your brain only takes, can hold so much information for so long. You know, and I can remember asking my mother, hey, you know, didn't you say such and such or this about my dad at one time? Wasn't that happening? It was a simple question again, kind of a reminder, you know. Then I can remember her going, you know, geez, I, I don't really remember. And I was like, oh, okay. So something went off in my head. And then I had the day, not too far after that, my son posed the same type of question to me. Hey, didn't you say this about your dad? Like, if I ever did, no, I can't remember. Oh, wow. So I said, you know, I ought to start getting this stuff collected and try to get it to a point where it's all in one spot. You know, make sure that the tapes don't deteriorate. The, uh, as many of the hundreds and hundreds of newspaper clippings we have from the 70s to the 90s about all this, let's get it all down so we get it. And just, and just for the listeners, when you say this, what was the story, what was the narrative with your father's service and his passing in Vietnam that was so uh, noteworthy that it, that it generated all this overwhelming arc for so many years? Um, I think it's because it, it, it had a lot to do with the fact that I think the family kind of knew something was going on and the fact that they couldn't get answers. And that really was and I'm paraphrasing, it was really the, the, the kind of the start or the spark that started the whole POW MIA movement because of stories like this. And because of that it was, they were operating in a neutral country, you know, all that stuff was, a, you know, we don't know you type of thing, it's all top secret classified. But the family also, you know, I, I guess they just had an inkling that the, the government wasn't being too forthcoming with them. And I think that created a, you know, other than the fact that you, like you said, the Vietnam vets were not treated well. But here's a guy who enlisted, he's a triple volunteer. And, you know, they, they just weren't being forthcoming with the family. Well, they, they couldn't, you know, that's fine, but they didn't know, know that at the time, nobody did. So 
I think that's kind of what led all that work, all that uh, anxiety, all that angst, and, and just that trying to find out for years was probably sank into a lot of people's heads and souls and really could see the what it meant to try to find something out for your loved one and it represented more than just him. It represented all that were, were missing or, or prisoners. So I have had old salts tell me this, but are you suggesting that for a long time there were a lot of POWs and MIAs that they either refused to acknowledge were missing or just didn't share the information about for the Vietnam era? Depending on what you're talking about. In this particular case, I can't speak for the others, but I know in this particular case, they could not, they wouldn't divulge the information because it was so highly classified. Wow. And that's simple. I don't, as far as the other ones, I, I, sure. I don't know if they had information. There have been stories back and forth, and even about my father, that he might still be alive. We have a paper, a newspaper clipping from the 70s that says he might still be alive. So those are the type of things that it's whirlwinding around this whole story for decades. I'd like to interject with uh, your initial question was like, I, I think we were talking about a, a turning point for um, recognition for uh, veterans and people that served. Right. And that all occurred as we got into the 90s. And this is when his body was discovered 21 years later. And that helped feed to the... Uh, not, not only the Fitzes keeping it alive the way they did. I, I know a lot of people that might live in this area might remember their house that used to have the banner of the POW up there for, for more than a decade that sat right there on 139 and people recognize that and remember that. But it was a turning point where people started giving these veterans their due. So uh, it just took a long time. Wow. Now, um, so all this happens and you decide to tell the story. And just from my experience in trying to create content, it, it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. And, and you have a lot of challenges getting what's in your, your mind, either on paper, on audio, on video. How did you start setting the framework to, to tell the story, to make this documentary? Well, a funny story right early before that is I literally got in touch with Rudy, met him through a, a musician friend. And when my name was introduced to Rudy, he's like, are you the, related to the Fitz from Abington? You know, well, the crazy thing is, is that he agreed to help me digitize all this, the older stuff for me. And, and, you know, and uh, but he knew my father's parents. Oh. Come to find out, your parents, Rudy's parents, were friends with my father's parents, and I never knew that. And Small world. <laughs> now, what was it that you had compiled for them? Years ago, when they had the burial, and uh, mass burial in Arlington, I had gone down there and filmed some stuff, and I sent it through my family up to my parents to give to the Fitzes. I've always known the Fitzes um, ever since I was young, and, and when I used to visit the wall, that was the one name that I always went to at, at the wall in D.C. because I lived down there for 25 years um, before moving up here about 15 years ago. And um, so I've, I already knew uh, the Fitzes. I didn't know quite the whole story. I knew there was a lot of unknowns. So uh, when, when Richard came to me with this box of tapes, 
I, I looked in the box and I pulled out a tape and lo and behold, it was my tape that I did 25 years ago. And I said, well, I guess I've been working on this thing for quite a while now, so let's finish it now. So what was that like to come into the story? Uh, you've had background in, in content production and media, and, and now you're actually getting to do something that's really in the family and for friends. What's that been like for you? Um, tell you the truth, it was a little. I was a little apprehensive. I didn't uh, um, really broadcast the fact that I was doing this documentary because I wasn't quite sure it was we were able, we were going to be able to accomplish it because of the lack of material that we really needed to tell the story. And so I just kept low key for like two years as we worked on it, and and not tell everyone about it because I, I didn't know if we could do it. That the truth truth of the matter was, I just really didn't know we could do it. When you say lack of material, what what was that like, and what were the other challenges? Well, the the being classified, they had no photographs, and no video, so I was like, how, how can we tell the story without all that? And then, um, it as we kept working at it, we we uh, located some um, reenactors that helped us, uh, and we actually did find some footage. Some vintage footage from uh, 1968, I believe it is, uh, from one of the special forces guys that had um, illegally uh, videotaped or with his movie projector uh, about 45 minutes of uh, training and stuff down. In, in yeah, well, it wasn't. It was okay to have the camera in the training as long as it wasn't over the over the line. Um, so some of that is what we used, and <clears throat> to to kind of help you understand how we got some of this is I had met a few people that knew my dad, <clears throat> actually reached out to me. My father's name in that particular mission he was killed on just so happens to be in a few books. And I didn't, you know, even didn't realize that. <clears throat> but the author of the books, some of them reached out to me and I've been meeting people here and there. So now it, when I try every year to get out to <clears throat> the special operations reunion in Vegas, and that's where I met some of these people that had some of the footage. And when I told them my idea about trying to get a story together, for them, that's when it went viral. And I've been with both of us and we get a lot of help and information and as much clarity as we can. Um, but the, the real feather, I think, in, in our cap was that I was approached by the, well, by now he's the former president of the Special Operations Association and he asked that when this is complete that it be a part of their living history project. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, you know, that's huge to me. To me, I was like, you know, that's great because even though my father, I try not to say that my father was defined by his very short time in this unit, it is really the basis of who he was to talk to people that were there with him. And that's really where a lot of this stems from. So those are the people that, you know, especially you can probably understand, again, the awkwardness of being who I was and meeting people like this and being accepted. That to me was very important to keep uh, true to what, you know, they their history is. And <clears throat> the, uh, sad part about it because of the elite um, nature of the unit uh, as were you saying there's so little 
footage or anything else, but there's also so little actual military records on on almost all their missions. <clears throat> so they are painstakingly trying to put their history together as well. Meaning that a lot of it, it's going on eyewitnesses and memories. And uh, you know, you get you know, a lot of these gentlemen now, you know, early 70s, and still trying to piece it together. So what we were able to accomplish just by getting together and deciding to do this, which was really like a, a quick discussion, you know, I was kind of thinking about doing this and we, it merged into, yeah, let's do it. And all of our work and travel has led us to the point where we've been able to piece even small pieces of this unit's history together. However small, we're still helping tie them some missing pieces. So it's, it's been a pretty, you know, amazing thing. We need, you had just gotten a, a, a not a pilot, but a, a draft of video documentary that you felt was suitable to start showing people. I haven't seen the documentary myself, but I think at the time we were talking, you were going to take it to a contest or a film uh, festival. festival in Ocean City, Maryland for review. How did it do down there? And, what was your feedback from that experience? Well, I, I think I'd like to let Rudy answer that question. Okay. Well, the, the uh, taking it to Maryland, to the, the Maryland Ocean City Film Festival was important for us because we wanted to take it outside of the area of our comfort zone, which is here in Abington, Massachusetts, and, and see how it, uh, other people identified with it and whether they could relate to it. And, um, it was well attended. Um, as soon as the lights went down, more people were still coming in the room and they had to bring in additional seating, um, which we were at capacity. And then in the, at the end of the festival, they, uh, out of 100 films, it came one, one vote short of becoming the uh, audience choice. Well, that's an... <laughs> yeah, and Congratulations. that's, that's I'm, like I said, we're completely out of our area. And it's not like we have a safe zone and people know the story. People had no idea of it. And people still walked away afterwards saying that was the best film of the entire festival. So this story connects with people on a very common level. People get what you're trying to say. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not just a tribute to Richard, and it, and it is, it, but it's more than that. It's a tribute to so many people out there that have stories in the military uh, losses and they all can identify and when they come up to you after the, f the festival and they explain about their folded flag and what their father did or their brother did in in service uh, for this country it uh, it's heartwarming you know it's 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 I think that that everyone would like to tell a story you know and everyone has a story to tell but it's having the opportunity uh, to put it all together is, is a huge undertaking. And it was to be with Richard on this journey as we went and sat down with eyewitnesses that for 30 years couldn't speak about what happened to, to his father and telling him to his face what they saw that day, November 30th, 1968, and realizing that I'm in the presence of this whole thing. It's just, it's an amazing uh, feeling. At that point, I knew we were going to do a documentary. I was very proud of what we were going to do. Like I said, I stopped trying to hide it at that point. Just for people listening, the title of the documentary is 21 Years, A Folded Flag. 
And at first I didn't quite understand it, but as I started researching the story, let me see if I got this right, it is the time from 1975 to 1989, it's 21 years, correct? Uh, 80, 68. 68, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so 1968 to 1989, that 21-year gap, if you will. And the folded flag is what's given to the family member. Generally, in this case, it would be the wife and or mother, depending upon uh, what the situation is. So that's where the title of this comes from. Correct. Yeah. Well, Richard was the one who received the flag in 21 years later. Right. And that was uh, because your... My mother was remarried. Okay. And so. the, the grandparents were still alive at that point, but it went to Richard. And no, so were, here he is, this long-haired rock and roll <laughs> 1980s guy, <laughs> receiving this flag from this military, and it's so awkward. It's, uh, it's but, you know, does... You kind of think, well, does this guy deserve it? You know, look at his hair, you know, and that's, yeah. I think that was the perception, and that's, that's the world he was in. Well, yeah, because in the movies and the TV shows, and, and typically it's, it's everybody's in the three piece suits, they're all dressed to the nines, and it's, it is a solemn affair. I mean, I mean I've, I've been in military funerals myself, but uh, typically it's the, the, the guy is either a carbon copy of his dad with the military buzz cut and everything, and you didn't quite fit the paradigm, did you? No, he, he was still dressed nice, but it it the um, well he wouldn't pass he wouldn't pass he wouldn't pass uniform inspection. Let's no, no, no. The thing was, that as a young child at five and five or seven years old, he was they, yeah they would dress him up in in a green beret uniform, and he would and we have actual footage of this of him dressed in with the green beret and it's a little little poster child, and then years later here he is poster child all grown up and you know he still lost his dad regardless of whether he had long hair or not that's that's correct and you know one thing that really kind of stood out to me it makes sense now is I would ride my motorcycle or drive on 139 headed into Abington and Rockland and I would see uh, this for lack of a better term like a monument type thing where it, it's it's a guy in an army uniform it's about three feet high, and he's saluting. There's an American flag there. I never really quite understood what it was. And my first thought was, well, maybe somebody passed, or maybe the homeowner got an exception to build this monument for veterans around the Basilian time frame. And it wasn't until we started talking that uh, that was actually, you know, Richard Fitz uh, Way. It's, a, it's, it's the street's named after your father, correct? Yes, correct. And uh, then I actually stopped you the day to look at it, and, and I was kind of curious if you'd kind of you know take me through how that got there and what that meant to you. That was actually placed way back in in '75, uh, and it had been there since then. But years gone by, it you know it had some wear and some and uh, it wasn't quite what you see now. Um, it was basically just a, a sign at that corner. The street was still named after. Um, that stretch of 139, uh, <clears throat> but the uh, the town and a couple of uh, people that work here in town for the veterans, they got together and had a whole plan. So what went into updating that or, or what went into getting that uh, monument there? Some veterans agents and people that work in the town for veterans, etc., they wanted to kind of update and put some money into 
all the streets and the, and the signs and, and if there were signs or not signs, you know, actually do something a little, uh, a little bit better for the, the veterans who have, who have passed. And this um, took place and uh, actually a local Eagle Scout stepped up and volunteered all his time to do all the bricklaying and, and cleaning up of it. And there was a new sign ordered, um, new sign, street signs, new, new square sign, dedication sign. It also updated some of the information a little bit, especially where you know they really didn't know what happened to my father or what he was doing. So a little bit more of that information was updated on the sign to make it a little more clear. Um, but a lot of people came together amongst a lot of different signs in the town, but this one in particular I think was one of the first ones. And um, they redid it all over and rededicated the square and had a big ceremony for it a few years back. And so now it's all you know, prettier. So once in a while, every springtime, no, if you if you're driving, pay attention. It's like, oh, it's there. I wonder what that is. And yeah. and, and now I know. So, you, you you've made the documentary. Are you in post production now, or are you pretty much done with it? Or, or? yeah, I would say you know, um, we're probably probably about ninety eight percent there. I think most of it's right now is like the small stuff, kind of going back and just tweaking everything, taking last looks at everything, sure. making sure that we're happy with what's going on. And then the biggest thing is soundtrack and uh, master. And soundtrack is, you know, I'm still writing a few things here and there, uh, gathering some things that, you know, I think may work a little bit better, and then take it to the master. So once you get the post uh, done, what's, what's next? What are you going to do with this in terms of either trying to get it out to a wider uh, you know, viewership or you know, giving it to the Special Forces group. What's the plan for the documentary? Um, <clears throat> I would like to see us do some, uh, some sneak previews, some showings, you know, and uh, do our best to um, you know, have a few around here or wherever it may take us, and as well uh, enter it into film festivals. Uh, to see how it does, it, you know. Yeah, there, there's a few. There's a few. Around. There's a few film festivals that are specifically geared towards military, um, and that we feel very confident that they'll they'll be looking hard at our film to uh, have to be showing it at their festivals. Um, the other festivals, there, there's such a wide range of things, and they're all over. There's thousands of them, uh, five thousand of them worldwide, probably. 3,000 in the United States, and you really got to go towards the, um, um, I guess it's not for every festival. I mean, I, we for a long time I made rock and roll, heavy metal documentaries, and you have to pick and choose where it's going to go. I think in this area we're going to, um, we're going to look at some festivals that, uh, but we also want to do the sneak previews in the, uh, in the area. Well, I would certainly like to attend either sneak preview or festival viewing if, if possible. Um, do you have any kind of, uh, I get asked this a whole lot, you know, do you need any help with this? Do you need any help promotion? Do you need any help financially? And if so, how can people get in touch with you to do that? Um, well, we have, uh, I did start a Facebook page with my father's name, it's Staff Sergeant Richard A. Fitz Documentary. Okay. Um, and there's also a GoFundMe page. Uh, which the links are uh, up on on that page. I post 
post on the page all the time. So I'll, I'll have those links in the yeah. Oscar Mike Radio blog post for this uh, podcast episode. And if you're listening, just click on the links to find out more about um, Richard and his father and how you can help. Yeah, and you can go straight. You can even donate straight to the local Rockland Trust Bank too. Yeah, I just I just want to mention that you know, taking on this documentary has been um, a financial burden on both of us. That we've we've incurred a lot of the the cost of traveling to find some of these uh, uh, soldiers. That uh, it's uh, South Dakota. We've had to go because you're not going to ask this guy 72 years old to fly him in, put him in a hotel, and go interview him. So we end up having to go out there and track them down in Florida. We've We've had to travel for reenactments in Louisiana. The cost of even putting it into a film festival for consideration is is a costly. Uh, you can spend thousands of dollars just having them look at your film, and that's not even if whether they accept it or not. So, um, yeah, you know, we hate to ask for help, but help really helps us. Well, there's no other way around it. Yeah, there's it, no. It, it costs money, and uh, and that's not that you know you you kind of feel sheepish. You know, asking, but this is the only way it's going to get done. Um, it, it's very difficult to, to do that process. And both of us have taken times out of our money, uh, times out of our job, and uh, money out of our pockets, away from our families and everything else, to, to try to get this accomplished. And I think, for the greater good, it's worth it. You know, just for the story, and uh, you know, especially to give homage to a, a fallen special operations warrior. In my opinion, it's worth it. It's a good story to have. It's part of our history, but at the same time, it's difficult to do. You know. Well, one of the reasons uh, this podcast was created, one of the reasons I wanted to do this, was tell stories like this one uh, that that need to be told because uh, our Vietnam veterans are passing, just like the World War II ones are, and there's a lot of stories from that time that haven't been told because a lot of them don't feel like it's normal listener care, and that's something not the truth. So. Um, folks, I, I just want you to uh, click on the links, check this out. If you're in the Abington, Massachusetts area, uh, you, know, you can you know, be a part of this if you want. If you're from other parts of the country, you can still reach out and contact Richard and Rudy. So um, just to close, guys, is there anything else you want to add or, or any thoughts you want to share with us? Um. No, I guess I guess we kind of said it all. I think okay. I think honestly, if all in all, I'd like I hope the story touches people in a way that, uh, especially people that have gone through children, especially that have gone through what I I went through, and quite frankly, I'm still going through. Um, you know, we know for a fact that in these uh, these type of units, stories like mine are created. And they're going to go through the same types of wonderings and, and maybe waitings or not knowing. And uh, it would be nice that some of this story hits, hits home to some of these kids that they can come out of it positive and proud. Um, and I say this all the time. I could have been, you know, especially as you put it, you know, I did have a little rebel in me. But I could have been the perfect candidate to be very negative about our country and our government. And, uh, it's, and I, even though my lifestyle was kind of rebellious, I, I never had that feeling. I never had that I had a problem with the government or whatever. It was negative. It was never, never negative to the point where 
you know, I'm spewing rhetoric and just feeling, you know, a lot of resentment. It, it was never really like that. So even not knowing and even not being a part of that world, I still never had that. And uh, it was difficult, but as I grew older and grew into what this is, it's even more positive because you have to have some kind of type of pride that's what I hang on to and uh, not to be not to be a chess beater but it would be nice to you know hey people understand this and uh, you don't have to be in that realm of you know hate or negativity if it does happen to you there'll be a day where you come across and, and you come out of it and feel feel proud look around for what we have in the country and what these type of people did for for you and others and that's a that's something to be proud of you know, that's almost just as powerful as your father's story itself because I think a lot of people would, especially in certain uh, environments, hang on to this and be really hateful, negative, uh, losing their parent the way you lost yours and not knowing, but instead you've taken this and use it as a way to help others. And I have to think that for both of you to see the reaction so far, you have to you've done the right thing. I'd just like to say that um, I spoke earlier about not letting people know that I was doing this. It's um, now that I've, we're coming close to the finish line on this whole thing that people have spoken to me as this being one of my defining films of, of my career so far. That that coming from an area where I was doing the rock and roll documentaries that have a limited audience, this one just really opens it up to, to an enormous amount of people that it their lives have been touched similar to what how Richards was and, and that uh, people can identify with this film so well. Well, I, I just, I, I don't know, for me, looking at uh, the Facebook clips on the Facebook page and you have a lot of information there, I'm like, okay, this is not just some flash in the pan kind of thing to make money. This is a real, this, this is a son's way to not only dedicate something to his father's memory, but like you, you guys have so clearly said, you want this to be something that other people can view, even though they haven't been in the military and connect with. And I think that that, I haven't seen it yet, but I get the impression that that's gonna happen. So I just wanna thank you guys for coming on. Um, I would love to have you back on when you start doing this, uh, more the more festivals and the sneak previews and tell me how it's going. And Rich and Rudy, just thank you for your time. Well, we'll be in touch with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is Omar and we are out.